The Tablet Show, Episode 70, with guest Robert Evans. Recorded live Wednesday, January 30th, 2013. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Robert Evans about getting Windows 8 applications certified into the Windows Store. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're here again. What's up, my friend? I am watching my uh, Nokia 800 get the Windows Phone 7.8 patch as we speak. That's awesome. You know, um, the 920, some of them had a problem, and uh, mine was one of them. The problem is that dust gets under the proximity sensor, and when you get on the phone, even if you're not holding it up to your face... The screen goes off. Isn't that awesome? That's neat. Well, and I understand why the screen's supposed to go off. If you're holding it up to your face, it just turns the screen off to save power. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Well, not only that, but just so that you don't accidentally press buttons like the disconnect button. Right. So that's good, except you can't use the screen. <laughs> so, you know, anytime you need to, I don't know, press a key to continue or press this or that, no, you can't do it. So... It's an aggravating problem. And I went online and I looked for the solution. And apparently, if you blow really hard into the earpiece, that can dislodge some. You know, I tried that, blowed my brains out, didn't work. So they're very nice, though. ATT is replacing it. So that's nice. I should have a replacement here soon. Hey, let's start with Better Know a Framework. All right, what do you got? Well, you know, uh, Better Know a Community today, we should say. There's a, you know about Media Center, right? Windows Media Center. I am a regular user of Media Center. First of all, Media Center has the best photo slideshow app. Oh, yeah. Ever. It's also the original Metro app, you know, yeah. going way back to the beginning. So it kind of is weird that it didn't make Windows 8. Yeah, yeah. It is kind of weird, isn't it? It's kind of weird. But who knows why? I don't know why. And if somebody does, it'd be a good story for the tablet show. But anyway... So if you go to tinyurl.com slash win8mc, you'll see how to get Media Center. If you have just Windows 8, you need to move up to Windows 8 Pro to get Media Center. And right now, as this recording, the price is $69.99. That's the Windows 8 Pro pack, all right? If you already have Pro and you want to get the Media Center pack, currently it's free. And all you really need to do is type the caption in there, your email address, and they send you a key that will unlock it. But that's only if you have Pro. If you have Enterprise, apparently you're out of luck. So it's only for Pro. That's interesting. Well, and I don't know that you're out of luck. I just haven't been able to find anything that says, you know, Windows Enterprise Media Center. And why would Enterprise have Media Center? It doesn't really make any sense. I don't know. I mean, I run Enterprise just because, you know, I'm a developer. I want everything there. You know, developers, we don't like restrictions at all. Right. You really want to quote ultimate and there really is no more longer at all. Yeah, there isn't any ultimate. Granted, I'm not in an enterprise and I don't need a lot of enterprise features, but uh, also enterprise comes with MSDN and Windows 8 comes with MSDN. Windows 8 Pro does not. MSDN? 
Yeah, the MSTN subscription. Interesting. It's all over the map. So that is your handy Windows 8 Media Center tip of the day. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 68, which is the one we did with Ray Bango, talking about uh, JavaScript. Actually, it was one of those conversations, which is typical of, like, it's like sitting with Ray in a bar. Yeah. You know, we just went off. <laughs> Uh, but this is a comment from, and let's face it, I have to call Stuart a superfan, Stuart Quinn, who's commented on all kinds of shows over the years and a regular listener for a long, long time. And uh, here's what Stuart says. Uh, Great show as usual. Just wanted to put my or in about the Metro Experience soapbox. I've been using Windows 8 since the RTM on MSDN, and I agree with the complainers that the non-touch experience on Metro is indeed subpar. This isn't a criticism on the discoverability, simply that multitasking and informational density of the desktop is superior when using a mouse. Mm -hmm. I know how Metro works. I just don't think it's as good as what we already have. And I can't argue with you there, Stuart. It's not for that. Yeah. You know, we're the high density users. I can't tell you how many people I watch who maximize all windows anyway. Yeah. Because they, they don't want to stack stuff up. That means they lose them. Yeah. But it, it's very much a mindset. Anyway, Stuart goes on to say, uh, I think there are two major criticisms of Metro here. How discoverable the Metro UI paradigms are and how appropriate it is, the Metro experience is for non-touch use. Mm-hmm. And Carl, your soapbox seemed to conflate the two when I think they are largely orthogonal. Unless you believe that once you learn the tricks from Hanselman's video, which I'll include in the show links, uh, the Metro becomes great for non-touch. Uh, which I don't. So even though it's mm. all been explained to him, he still doesn't buy into it. I have okay. yet to find a modern UI app that is of, quote, use to me. He, he's uh, sort of confusing what I said. And my, my thought is not using modern UI apps on the desktop. I agree. I, I think the modern Metro apps on the desktop just don't work. They don't work well. But if you're talking about desktop mode, and you're talking about just replacing Windows 7 with Windows 8 and using desktop mode as much as possible, um, I find virtually no difference. I mean, yeah. yes, you know, I use Slick Run to launch my apps. I pin things to the taskbar. Uh, if I want to, you know, run something, I just type CMD for a command prompt, whatever. You know, it's just easy for me. It just doesn't get in my way is what I'm saying. I agree with him, though, that the experience of running a full screen, you know, modern app is difficult on the desktop. Well, it's totally different. I think that was part of the conversation we had then was that you end up living in desktop mode and the uh, Metro screen is really like uh, a funny start menu. Yeah, it's a funny start menu, exactly. And that's the way you got to think of it. Pops up and goes away. That's fine, though, for me. Uh, Stuart goes on to say, I tried for months to use the built-in PDF reader before relenting and installing a desktop reader. Having said that, I don't mind the start screen. I've been recommending Windows 8 to everyone I speak to for the multitude of improvements on the desktops. Right. Yeah. Stuart, absolutely. Yep. You know, I buy into your position. I would recognize that, uh, you know, you and I and Carl, like, we're different class of user. And, and that's why there's those two modes that we can get over to the desktop mode for this style of work that we like to do. Uh, I'm still hotly in pursuit of the modern UI app for line of business. And uh, when we find the right one believe me we'll be doing shows on it and i'm not going to send you a mug sir but i will fire an email and we'll talk about it because i know you've got a a full tea set of mugs at this point but uh, thanks again for your comment and if you'd like to get a mug just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com and with that let me please introduce uh robert evans 
He's a senior premier field engineer at Microsoft with over 12 years' experience as a developer at Microsoft, working on such product groups as MSN, Xbox Live, IT, and mobile engineering. Robert travels frequently delivering instructional courses to developers on technologies such as Windows 8 development workshops, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, WCF, and General.NET technologies. Robert is a Microsoft Certified Professional Developer, uh, MCPD Enterprise, and a Windows 8 Dev Bootcamp Instructor. He's currently the worldwide technical lead for Windows Store App Labs. Welcome, Robert. Hello. Happy to be on your show. Happy to have you. Um, you wanted to chime in about our comment that we read today. I'm sure you have a lot of opinions. Well, as you know, I've been using Windows 8 for quite a while now, and, and it's on my primary dev machine. And uh, I, I agree there was some getting used to the new UI, but um, two things that, that helped me as a power user. Uh, number one, just hitting the Windows key and typing whatever it is you're looking for, control panel or whatever, mm. I find that easier and faster than, you know, the old Windows 7 method of clicking in the lower corner and, and trying to work your way through that tree control and find exactly where you want to go. Uh, the second thing is, a little tip, if you'll right-click in the lower left-hand corner, you'll find that brings up a list of power commands like disk management, command prompt, run. So you can go directly uh, to any of those, task manager, power options, uh, programs and features. Or Windows X. Yeah, exactly. Or or you can remember the uh, the many uh, secret shortcut keys we have for power users. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a fan of those things, and um, uh, like I said before, I the only thing that I would see it, and I love Windows 8, and I love it for all the reasons that uh, everybody else does on the desktop, you know, the improvements, but um, the only thing that I don't like is, you know, in desktop mode, having something take up the whole screen, you know, a modern app take up the whole screen. That's just, uh, that's I don't like that. Other than that, you know, if you're using it in desktop mode, if you're used to Windows 7 and Windows 7 desktop mode, uh, I, I like it better than Windows 7. Yeah, there's definitely differences with the modern UI and the immersive mode, as we call it, uh, applications taking up the full UI. Right. Uh, it takes some getting used to, but um, especially on, on touch, uh, that is a, a useful paradigm. Robert, in your bio, you mentioned the Windows Store App Labs, or WSAL. What is that, or what are they? Yeah, Windows Store App Labs, WSAL. So these are labs where we have engineers in different locations worldwide, where if you're developing a Windows Store app, you can come into one of these app labs and sit down with one of our engineers, and they'll help you if you're stuck on coding issues. Uh, we'll also go through the, the checklist, the quality checklist, and also help you get past some of the certification blocker issues. And today, I hope to talk to you about some of the common things that we've seen in those labs and talk to you about the labs. Sure. Uh, so far, we've had um, uh, 4,053 apps come through our labs worldwide. Uh, we've held these labs in 53 countries, and we've gathered a lot of data from the experience, and we've helped a lot of people. So th you don't have to put your app through the app lab to get it up onto the store? Correct. You only have to meet the certification requirements in order to get your app into the store. Um, you'll also need to run the Windows App Cert Kit. Uh, it, it, 
before you submit to the store. It'll be run automated as soon as you submit to the store. But if you want to help prevent yourself from hitting some of the uh, the common blockers, you'll want to run that app cert kit before you submit to the store. Yep. Um, and the app cert kit doesn't cover all of the certification requirements. There's still a manual check in there as well. And it, it makes sense for you to run it yourself because it's going to get run when you submit it. So if it's, there's something simple to be caught, you might as well catch it yourself rather than waiting. Correct. And if at all possible, we also recommend running the uh, Windows App Cert Kit on Surface. There's a version for Windows RT that uh, that you can run because there are rare cases where it will pass the Windows App Cert Kit on, say, an x86 or x64 machine. Right. But with a little bit slower processor, some of those tests, because it runs automated tests against your app, performance tests, load times, so forth. And uh, we've seen it in some rare cases. Um, actually, I saw one of these just uh, on Monday where uh, it was it was passing fine, got up into the store, actually, even, and then uh, on some surfaces, it was uh, not working, and uh, the WAC test, Windows App Cert Kit, on Surface failed. Right. So, yeah, it sounds like as a developer, it's in my best interest to own sort of a minimum spec uh, RT device so that I can, I can test it at that lower level. Yeah, exactly. Now, I have noticed that the time to get apps in has gone up. Uh, it was, I think it was Jason Fallis just tweeted today that he submitted an update to an app at 6 o'clock at night, and by 10 o'clock at night, it was up, which I guess is not the same as submitting a new app, but still, it sounds like cycle times are going pretty fast inside of the store these days. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Uh, it was uh, definitely not the case when, when the Surface just first appeared. Right. So, we did have a bit of a backlog, uh, right before general availability and um, shortly after general availability also, uh, where we had a flood of apps coming in. And actually, our team, um, they were called Application Excellence Labs at that time. Now they're called Windows Store App Labs. Mm -hmm. But we were actually helping to supplement and, and, and do reviews and trying to reduce the number of failures, uh, certification failures, in order to speed up the process. So you actually went out in the field doing these app labs in different cities so people could come and test their apps more thoroughly? Yeah. So so backing up a little bit, the uh, Application Excellence Labs, which is what the same effort was called originally, were we held them in 53 countries. Mm -hmm. And um, now they're held in 37 countries. 17 of those have events posted right now. If you go to windowsstore.com forward slash app labs, you'll see the sign-up process there where you can find one that's going on in a city near you. Uh, we also have um, an email address there that you can contact our team if you don't see your country uh, or, or city listed. And in many cases, we're able to do virtual reviews. So if you're not wow. able to come into one of our locations, we can actually do a virtual review of your app and give you some feedback and um, and do a, a link meeting. Yeah, that's one-on-one -on -one, uh, with your engineers. Exactly. One-on-one -on -one with the Windows 8 expert to help you out. That's awesome. So what are the top stumbling blocks for developers? You know, what are the big problems they're running into these days? Okay. I'd love to do that. I'll, I'll get into that. And so we've seen uh, apps coming through. Uh, first of all, I'll say 59% of the apps that have come through our labs are XAML and C-sharp backend. You know, there's three supported uh 
three supported languages for writing Windows Store app labs. Yeah. You can either do C++, and recently they've added with XAML front end, or you can do uh, WinJS and HTML5, which is uh, WinJS is our JavaScript library that's the APIs, but it's primarily in uh, jQuery. And then um, the breakdown that we've seen coming through is 59% are, are XAML and C Sharp, 36% are WinJS, and 5% are C++. I was surprised personally to see the large amount of HTML5 and, and WinJS apps that are coming into the store. Yeah. Uh, I was at one hackathon event in Vancouver, and I said, can I see a, a show of hands how many people here have never done any .NET development at all? This is their first time. And almost half of the people raised their hands. I wow. was just really wow. surprised by that. It's a, it's a brave new world. <laughs> so how do the JavaScript people find... WinJS. It's it it's the same language. It's jQuery. It's just new APIs that you have to learn in order to do the app bar, in order to do charms, you know, settings and so forth. Uh, and and they had a, a fairly quickly. I mean, by the end of the hackathon, they were writing apps. They were um, not ready for the store yet, but they were they were churning out apps. Yeah, I got to imagine the HTML JavaScript guy who's never programmed, you know, against a framework like .NET or Java, for that matter, you know, in seeing all the richness that's there. Yeah, we have really uh, robust development tools with Visual Studio to help you out. And the Express version, which is free, and you can write full, uh, fully featured Windows Store apps with that. So, and, and do live debugging and change variables. There, there's a, a powerful set of tools to help them out. So I'd like to go over some of the uh, common issues that we run into to help you guys. If you're, right. uh, you know, your listeners, if they're developing Windows Store App Labs, they're probably going to run into some of these, uh, or they may, and this could help them with the heads up. The first one, number one, top of the list, is the most common certification blocker, and that's privacy policy. So the Internet Client Connection capability is uh, turned on by default, and even if you're not using it. So if you're building a Windows Store app and you have images, you have everything included in your app, and you're not pulling any resources down over the uh, Internet Client Connection, then you don't need to have that turned on. Um, but it's on by default. And if you have it on, you absolutely have to have a privacy policy. And that privacy policy should describe how you're using the data. So even... Uh, uh, if you're pulling an image from a remote site, then you're transmitting that person's IP address, and that's considered PII. So we have to have a privacy policy. PII, private information? Correct, yeah. So um, you the, the privacy policy has to be there if you have the Internet client capability. So just let's back up on that one. Are you saying that if my app downloads a JPEG from a website, that the JPEG somehow has the IP address of the host in it or the request and response has? Just making the request. So, so what we look at when we're doing the certification is if you have um, Internet Client capability declared for your app, okay. then, you have, then you have to have a privacy policy okay. because that, that allows your app to do requests and to transmit data, and, and we don't go as far as seeing if you are actually doing that or not. We just see if you have the capability declared. Make sense? Yeah, and I imagine there's some boilerplate privacy policies that you could pick or choose or adopt. Do you guys supply those? 
we do not supply them, but they're definitely out there. And uh, the 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 certification requirements just state that you have to have um, information describing how you're using uh, using customer data as well as uh, anything that is um, uh, applicable for the laws of the country in which you're releasing. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you have to then ask permission to use the Internet in your app, do you? No, you don't. Okay, so in most cases, people don't need the Internet client capability declared in the first place. Right. So the easy solution is to just go and turn that off. And if they do have it, then the privacy policy should be in the settings flyout. It can either be a direct link from the settings flyout, and you can call it privacy or privacy statement. Mm-hmm. And that link can go out to a website where you host your um, your privacy policy. Uh, having links that go out to websites do not require the internet client capability to be okay. declared. Or you can have it. You can have an about in your settings flyout, and then that link can have uh, information your privacy policy. And it's really, even if you're only downloading content from the web that you need, Correct. It's not, you don't have to be uh, sending data. But I think the main thing here is just you have to have a statement, here is our privacy policy. Sure. Even if those policies yeah. are, we're selling every bit of your data to anybody who wants it. Sure. Just saying it's the important part. Right. So let's say that you actually do need the internet client capability declared because either you are... Um, downloading information and in the process you're collecting some some information you know like uh, perhaps analytics within your app something like that uh, then it depends on the the type of data that you're collecting and whether you need to go the extra step and have an opt-in so if you're uh, collecting PII if you're collecting information that can be directly associated with that user such as even their address or their email address or their name, things like that, then you have to go a little bit further and you have to have a checkbox and they have to manually check that checkbox and give consent before you collect and use that data. Okay. If it's not directly associated with the person, if there's no PII uh, and you're not associating it with their IP address or anything like that, then you're okay with just having the privacy policy. Maybe you're just downloading images and using it in your app, and then you can just have your standard uh, privacy policy. Okay, got it. I mean, are you actually checking that on the back end in the certification process as to what we're what we're doing there? There is a little bit of check there, and I have seen people that were um, calling out to third-party services. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, the, the one that I'm thinking of was a tracking service, and because they're making that call out to the, the third-party service, they were required to have the, uh, uh, the, the checkbox and the, and the uh, opt-in consent. So hmm. there are some checks done there. We do go that far. And... and even for for example, uh, if you're doing a paid app, you should also have um, technical support options listed, and that can be one of three things. It can be a, an email address, it can be a form that they fill out, or it can be a working phone number. And uh, the store team will check that the email address is a valid functioning email address. So we 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 try our best to to do all the appropriate um, checks during certification. Yeah, and it's just that yeah, these are subtle things too. The the, the difference between the different rules around all of that. So the number one certification pol- blocker for that you've got then is just not having a policy. 
Correct. Just not having the privacy policy when you have internet client capability to correct. Right. The, the number two is not a certification blocker, but it's a common issue that we have seen in the field is just working with the uh, modern UI or Windows Store UI, formerly known as Metro. <laughs> right. Um, and, we, you know, we've given up and just started calling it Metro again. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we have this luxury. We don't work for Microsoft, so we don't have to follow the rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> Well said, Sarah. Well said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, know, you said so much, Robert. We really appreciate that. I, I, I have to catch myself all the time. Yeah. So, um, the, uh, a lot of developers really just, you know, haven't read through the UX guidelines. They don't really understand our requirements around that. And it and it's new, right? I mean, yeah. in the past, we were really relaxed. You write it in WPF or Silverlight or whatever language you want and, and create an app and get it out there. It wasn't like the store where we have some guidelines or requirements. So, uh, for example, the navigation and the silhouette, we see, we've seen a lot of apps come through that have Chrome and they're designed just like, you know, a WinForm app or they may be designed like a web app and they have right. lots of buttons in the UX, which are, you know, against our guidelines. We don't want to see commands on the Chrome. Uh, we set, we see navigation controls like tabs and tree view for navigation instead of using the, the, the app bar, the top app bar, for example, and, uh, hierarchical and flat navigation paradigms. So it, we do a lot of education, like talking to them, and we show them the default templates that, that come with uh, Visual Studio. And um, there's various uh, app bar issues we've seen, like uh, they'll have navigation items in the bottom app bar instead of the top. Um, they'll have fixed instead of transient app bars. Um, and then, oh, there's a, a lot of misconception over contextual commands. So essentially, the way I like to, to say it is anywhere where you would typically use a right click in mm -hmm. your app is probably a candidate for contextual commands using the transient app bar. That's where, you know, you select an item, the app bar should pop up from the bottom, and then the commands that you have that are relevant for that selected item should show up on that bottom app bar. Um, right. So... And then the third most common one is snap view. So as you know, we, we support three different layouts. Um, you, you can have your app uh, full, it can be um, filled, or it can be snapped. And snapped is where it's taking up just, uh, 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 I don't know what the percentage is, but the le say the left or right-hand side of your screen, you can have two apps running side-by-side. And it isn't like Windows 7 where the app was in its own window and, and really didn't typically doesn't have uh, uh, any – the app itself doesn't understand that it's been resized, right? Whereas in uh, Windows 8, we expect that the app should be aware when it snapped and it should change its layout. So we have something called the Visual State Manager that allows you from your app to, to monitor which state you're in, such as snapped, and then provide a different template for that layout, say with vertical scrolling of the items instead of horizontal. That's what we expect. Sure. So what we've seen, though, with a lot of apps that come through is you snap them and uh, maybe they'll get the uh, vertical scrolling correct, but there's often overlapping of the commands on the app bar. The title oftentimes gets... Uh, 
truncated, you know, if they have a title up there. So they essentially, we do some testing around there, do some education. You don't have to have all of the commands available while you're snapped. You can only, uh, you could reduce that to the ones that are only relevant while they're snapped. And then also, um, it's not mandatory to support to for your app to fully support Snapped. A good example of this is uh, the Cut the Rope application. If you try and snap that, you'll see that uh, you get um, just a, a nice UI that says, if you want to continue playing the game, please unsnap. Right, yeah. So here's where a lot of developers also go wrong in. They do that, and then they'll supply a little button to unsnap. And yeah, you can do that from the API level, but it's against our UX guidelines. We really don't want to see that uh, you programmatically unsnapping the app. And when you say snapped, is it the two-thirds point or the one-third point? One-third. The two-thirds would be full. Full. Okay. As opposed to really full, which is the whole screen. Yeah. Filled. Yeah. So it's filled, full, snapped. <laughs> Correct. And some apps lend themselves well, you know, to having a, a different style when it's in snap mode. But it also, I think, makes sense. It says, you snapped me. I don't like it. I'm going to pout. Well, you also have to take into account the style when you're, you know, in landscape or portrait mode, right? I mean, it just styles in general. And that's actually the third point here is that a lot of apps struggle with landscape versus portrait mode. And many of them just give up on it and don't, don't do anything with it. But we see truncation, we see alignment issues. Um, and yeah, like I said, a lot of them just don't declare portrait in their manifest. This sounds like this pretty easy things to test, just making sure your app works filled full snap portrait and landscape. Yeah, totally. But you would be surprised at some of the even large enterprise customers that uh, have beautiful apps. And then as soon as you snap it, it, it just everything falls apart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, I'm like, they haven't uh, tested that. Yeah. This portion of the tablet show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the Tablet Show. Are you, uh, you a proponent of using ratios for your, you know, sizes of elements or specific pixel sizes? There's, there's really two, two approaches to take with this. When you're dealing with different resolutions, this really comes into play. And that's somewhere down on, on the list. Um, for example, with the larger resolutions like 1920 by 1080, uh, what we see... Sometimes is apps don't account for that, and they'll just take up a small box in the upper left-hand corner. Mm. I saw that uh, with with a, a game that's now in the store, their initial version when I was working with them. Um, but there's two approaches. So you can do adaptive or you can do fixed. Uh, with fixed, everything sizes, and that's what you were referring to, like sure. using 
star notation and, and so forth. With a, adaptive, uh, for example, if you have a grid that has three rows, adaptive will add a fourth row on the larger resolution because you have more screen real estate, so you may as well show more items. And I, I, I lean, depending on the app type, but the for games, fixed for sure. You know, yeah. I haven't yet to see a, a game where adaptive would make sense. But for the majority of other content-driven apps, uh, the adaptive layout is better. And our default templates give you that for free. So uh, your grid view will add an additional uh, row at the bottom. Now, there's some other things that you have to consider when you're dealing with different resolutions. For example, providing different um, image uh for for each of the resolutions, mm-hmm. so there's a, a naming uh, format that you need to follow with uh, and and uh, a post fix for each of the resolutions. That way, you can provide your own images at uh, that you resize in your own graphics program to make sure they look good instead of leaving it up to us to do the resizing, right? And then you can specify different images and um, will. Uh, will automatically the framework will plug in the correct image for the for the resolution that they're currently in. Um, if you are worrying about the app bar, there's um, that uses the Sago UI symbol font. So each uh, the, the the sizes will automatically adjust for the given resolution. You don't have to if if you're using the uh, Sago UI symbol uh, for your formerly known as Metro yeah. uh, <laughs> icons. It's a good thing to do. Okay, so let's see. Uh, the next one is charms. So we see some duplication of charms functionality uh, inside the app. Right. This was more more common, particularly before GA. Uh, I see it less now, but in the beginning, this was very common, where we had, um, instead of leveraging the built-in charms menu for settings and, and searching, uh, we would have apps that had uh, uh, settings uh, icon in the app, in their app bar or even on the Chrome I've seen, uh, built into the app, also searching. Unless searching is the primary responsibility of the app, like it's a search app. Or even if it has, even if it's searching requires more than one field. I mean, if you, if you can't do a search without two fields, what use is a one field search bar, right? That's a good point. Yeah, there are there are cases where it's okay to have search within your app, mm. but for the most part, we want to see people leveraging that charms menu, and and you won't be blocked from the store if you don't do that. This is just going to help you uh, if you really want to get your app recognized and in the top apps and and so forth. Then then it helps to follow these guidelines. Uh, the next one is PLM, so Process Lifecycle Management. Um, if you're coming from the, the .NET world and you're developing apps, the, this whole concept is going to be new to you. Um, if you're running the immersive apps, modern um, Windows Store apps, what you'll notice is that when the app is not in the forefront, the runtime broker will suspend all threads in the app. And you can see this. It's pretty cool. If you pull up Task Manager and you switch between a, a Windows Store app and back, you'll see in Task Manager, uh, after about five seconds, it'll it'll drop down to zero CPU. Um, and what's happening here is you're given five seconds to save any state. You can use the Suspension Manager for that. 
Um, or you can save state manually yourself. You can uh, write out to local settings is what most people do. And local settings, by the way, is the default storage backing for uh, Suspension Manager. It's really easy to switch it to roaming settings if you want all of the uh, state that you're maintaining to be used across multiple machines. So uh, when you download a an app from the store, the, by default, you get it on up to five machines. So your same Microsoft account on your laptop, on your Surface, you can have that same app on multiple machines. And if, it, if the app is done really well, then that app will actually remember where you are in the app. And when you open it up on another machine, it'll bring you right back to that same spot. That's the ideal scenario. Mm. And all the settings that you've configured for that app will be also on your other machine. It's all stored up in Azure. Uh, if they use roaming settings instead of local settings, a very simple change to make. But yeah. anyway, um, people uh, are, are unfamiliar with the concept, and, and sometimes they take over five seconds to store state. So if they're saving it out to a web service or something like that, uh, then the runtime broker will terminate their app. So what you'll do is you'll see, you'll switch, you know, between that currently running app and another one and then come back and the app's gone. It's just been terminated. There's no error message or anything. The, the app just it disappears. I've run into gotchas with that. Um, we, you know, if you only are saving your state in that particular time, you may run into problems where somebody just presses and holds the power button and boom, the whole thing is down and you don't have time. You don't have five seconds. Uh, you crash, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it's a good idea to save state often, you know, just uh, on a regular interval. And especially if you're dealing with documents or anything. Absolutely. That's that's a really good point in that uh, the suspension manager will, will give you a, um, a suspending event before normal termination. But if you're doing like power off, you won't get that. So... Uh, what we recommend in the app labs is that you save state often and we recommend you use roaming settings. Yeah. And it's easy enough to do this outside of the suspension manager. Roaming settings is a key value pair. It's a hash table. So you can just save which page you're on and uh, you could do another key uh, for additional state on that page. And then you can do a frame.navigate when you start up and, and look at the uh, uh, termination reason. So all of that is is good stuff. So you also might want to mention that um, roaming settings is really for small key, you know, name key pair values. It's not for, you know, saving files and things like that. Yeah, roaming files would be for, for files. I think it was 8K and 64 for the value. For user. It's fairly, yeah. Something like that. It's fairly small. You're right. Right. But it's great because, you know, you pull up the app on another machine and boom, your settings are there wherever you left off. You know, this is the classic uh, context uh, part of modern apps. You know, they're contextual, that you, you shut it down on your phone and you pull it up on your tablet and you're right back on page 75 of your document or wherever you were. That's a really great trick. You don't want to store the document in this. You want to re restore that you were on page 75. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, that, that you're storing a name-value pair. So... Yeah, that's yeah. the important part here is is across machines, you know, your laptop right. versus your, your um, Surface. But it's funny that we've had, ever since we've had access to web servers, we've had the ability to do this kind of thing. It just hasn't really been necessary because, you know, having multiple devices has never been, you know, in fashion. 
So we never really had, you know, a phone, a tablet, a PC until recently. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think as time goes on, I would hazard uh, a prediction that this will be expected behavior in the future, that as they're halfway through doing something and they bring it up on a different device, they'll expect the application to be smart enough to know where they left off. Mm. So we don't block on this, but we educate on it and recommend it. Um, the next one on the list is network. So the app has to behave well offline and on intermittent network connectivity. Right. A lot of apps get stuck on this one. Um, especially, I like to test the app by putting my device in airplane mode and then bring it up for the very first time while on airplane mode. A lot of apps, uh, a lot of apps just, just crash uh, as they try to do initial loading. A lot of them behave well after they've loaded initial data because we'll cache images locally and then bring them up from the local cache by default anyway. So a lot of them get really good behavior uh, by default anyway. But anyway, so it's worth mentioning, make sure you test. Now, I'll also say like the network APIs, the network APIs will tell you if you're connected to the network, but they won't tell you if that network is actually um, on the internet. So like if your router's down uh, and not connected to the internet, but you're, you're on your Wi-Fi network, then the network APIs are, they're all happy. Yeah, you're on the network. Everything's fine. So beyond just looking at the network APIs, we recommend that the app, if, if you really want to make it robust, do some additional checks, call out to your service, have like a heartbeat uh, that you can call out to, to make sure that you're, you're still, um, you know, online and, and getting to your own web service, those could also be down, right? So um, anyway, a really good, robust app needs to consider network and it should behave well offline and on intermittent network connectivity. Richard and I like to tell people to code for disconnected first. You know, in other words, use some sort of client-side tool library, like SyncFX or, or whatever it is, you know, that you can write to as a local data store and then have some other process going that we would synchronize that or something or just, you know, just being able to handle being disconnected at all. But once you start going down that rabbit hole, you start thinking, you know, maybe I ought to be, you know, writing locally and then syncing when I can, if you can do that. Yeah. And, 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 and roaming files that you mentioned earlier, first of all, that's a great that's a great advice. I, I, I wholeheartedly support that. And if you, if you go, if you design your app with limited network connectivity in mind from the get-go, it makes it a lot easier. And then I'll say that uh, something like roaming files gives you a lot of built-in functionality for free. So roaming files uh, allows you to have, um, you know, images or whatever resources you want that's associated with that Microsoft account. So it can be shared across multiple devices. You can leverage that and read from it locally. And when you write to uh, roaming files, the syncing part of it is done by the OS. And more importantly, the OS also takes into consideration meter networks. So um, if you're on a metered network, you can set in your uh, in your settings not to sync uh, roaming roaming data while on a metered network. So if you're using like uh, you know AT and T or, or one of these uh, data plan roaming networks, mm. uh, you don't want to incur huge data fees for syncing 50 megs worth of files. You know, right. it could cost you a fortune. And uh, we provide the, the meter network API so you as a developer can leverage those directly to control behavior of your app. But if you use roaming files, then you don't have to worry about it because the OS has those settings built in. 
Uh, and the next one's handling and displaying errors. So a lot of apps um, will uh, just display dialogues uh, whenever they get an error. And we're, we're, we're trying to steer people away from that, our guidelines. Uh, the only time that you should have a dialogue uh, is if it's your app is essentially about to crash. That's the only time that we want to see that, that message box come up. Otherwise, it should be a warning bar with um, uh, appropriate text. Uh, at the uh, top, or it could be inline errors. If if there's an error that's associated with a particular element within, like if you have a form in your app, then uh, it should be inline. You know, like you see in uh, NBC and ASP uh, yeah. sites now. Uh, let's see, and then we have search and share contracts. So um, we really found a lot of people, a surprising number of people, were not even aware of sharing and share uh, share source and share target and how that works. And uh, they were pleasantly surprised when, when we educated them about that. You know, there is no um, IPC, no inter-process communication between Windows Store apps. The supportive way to move data across apps is sharing. And you can share pictures, you can share text, pictures and text, or you can create your own share contract for structured data. And so long as uh, the other app has a share target that corresponds, then when you bring up the share charm, it'll it'll allow you to share that data across the apps. Mm-hmm. Really powerful. I'm, uh, out of all the features in Windows 8, that one has me the most excited. Mm-hmm. We haven't had anything quite like that, and it opens up just so many different possibilities for apps to be able to talk to each other. It's kind of it's kind of like data contracts for the client. Right. You know, if you've ever worked with WCF, yeah, I just I, I'm really excited about sharing. Well, it strikes me that it's the 21st century cut and paste. You know, we, we take cut and paste for granted now, but you go back to the beginning of Windows, being able to cut and paste data between apps was a miracle. Right. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. You could, you could look at it like that. That's right. Yeah. It, it, it just opens up a whole, whole realm of possibilities, but it's so much better than cut and paste because the apps know about the data that's being passed back and forth and they can do intelligent things with it. This really uh, enables you to, um, decompose a complex app into, uh, smaller, more targeted, more specific apps. More specific functions within the app. Correct. Right? Yeah. So, you know, this is one of the challenges of modern apps is that taking a big, you know, app that has lots and lots of records in it and you can do everything and there's a million buttons and menu options, decomposing that into smaller apps that are more specialized is difficult because you have this issue of these apps don't know about each other. They're islands. But with data sharing and these sharing contracts, essentially, you uh, you now, they can share data. They can work together. Exactly. And I'll give you an example of that. So there's a, a coloring book app that, that you can, uh, kids can use to, to color pictures. And then it supports sharing. So when you do the uh, the coloring book and you, you create the image, then you can then share that. And then there's Puzzle Touch, which is a great app that um, you can create puzzles from images. And you can share pictures directly with Puzzle Touch. So now these two apps that don't know anything about each other are written by totally different companies. Now you can do coloring book pictures and then share them directly and make a puzzle out of it. I mean, it just it opens up, you know, a whole realm of uh, use cases sure. that, that weren't there before. So um, searching and sharing, definitely, you know, searching both in app and out of app searching. Uh, it's really important to test your app with uh, out of app searching. So if, if your app is not 
if it's not running and you haven't opened it, uh, test searching from there. A lot of people miss that particular test, and and I've seen crashes and so forth on that. You need to uh, be aware of that. Games, actually the majority of apps I was surprised to see that come through our app labs were games. Hmm. Uh, the next one down was uh, uh, productivity, and we had uh, a lot of educational apps coming through also, and entertainment, a few news and weather tools. So um, anyway, with regards to games, the guidelines are a little bit different for games. Some people were running into challenges and trying to make it work in Snapped and, and other issues and uh, didn't realize that they could put commands on the Chrome when they're dealing with games. So uh, we just recommend people go to design.windows.com. There's a link from there to games where we have the published guidelines now. Prior to GA, we didn't have that, so we had to really walk people through it. And then load time. So as I mentioned earlier, some apps try to save state out to a web service or uh, go to a uh, their own service while launching. And if you exceed that five-second limit, then the runtime broker will terminate your app. High-resolution screens, I think we talked a little bit about adaptive versus fixed and the different uh, requirements for testing on the different resolutions. You'll see in the in the emulator, if you bring it up, on, on the right-hand side, you can click and change to the different resolutions. So you can test your app on different resolutions right from within Visual Studio and the emulator. That's highly useful. Hmm. Embedded browser, we run into this. We run into this still. So apps should not use an embedded browser to complete their primary workflow. You actually may be blocked from the store if you're doing this. Wow. If, you, if your app is just a container for a web view that's going out and, and doing something, um, then that that is really frowned upon. It should just be a website if, if that's what your app is doing. So we try to steer people away from that, and um, yeah, we have a certification requirement on that. Very common. You'll see a lot of uh, 1.1 certification failures if, if they're just an embedded browser. Now, if you have some of your app that has normal UI, but you're doing things like comments or about or, you know, some, could you have a portion of it that have an embedded browser? Yeah, and it's a gray area, right? Right. I mean, I've seen this done for phone apps fairly often, where some piece of the UI are phone app, and some of it are, are UI local, and some are just the browser so that you can get some bits off of the web service. Correct. And it's okay to do that, It's and it is a bit of a gray area, but it definitely should not be your primary workflow. Okay. So if it's the main part of your app, you should not have that. And uh, in the initial stages before GA, we did not have a separate certification line item for this. Now we do. And we really look for it. Everybody looks for it. Um, there was a, a, a flood of apps initially that that were really just wrappers to their websites, you know, right. people trying to get, get something in the store as quickly as possible. And, and there's lots of problems with that. You know, how can you support the, uh, the network connectivity I guess with HTML5, you could do local um, pages, but, you know, for offline. But you, you just run into a lot of problems, and really the, the, the main point is that it should just be a website if that's what you're doing. Now, having, like you said, small parts of your website, perhaps comments here or there that are, that are using leveraging a web view, that's fine. That's acceptable. Hmm. Uh, and we've got just 
two more left on the main list. So sign in and sign out. Uh, this one, a lot of people had challenges with also. Many apps have a custom login that is just built directly into their app, and they have either a blank screen on initial load, or they have a very poor user experience with the credentials required uh, built in on initial load. We try to give some guidance around that and prefer you to use the settings flyout for your uh, custom sign-in, sign-out controls. And if you absolutely require the user to be signed in, then we want you to show the settings flyout when you initially load the app. Yeah. What we're trying to avoid with the sign-in and sign-out is where you have uh, credentials that are specific to your app in the middle of the page as soon as you open up the app and there's no other options. Uh, we prefer you to use the settings flyout and show that immediately. Mm. Um, but if you absolutely require the authentication, then then you can have it in, in the middle of the page um, if, it's, uh, if it's Facebook. That's the, the, uh, the guidance around that. If it's not the Facebook with the embedded browser control uh, as, or another identity provider that uses the embedded browser control, mm-hmm. then we want your credentials in the settings flyout and for that to be shown on initial loading. So the flyout would actually popped out with their login information sitting there or they have to type it in? Correct. They'd have to type it in if they haven't already logged in. Right. You can use the uh, authentication broker, web authentication broker, and single sign-on, and we support a variety of different identity providers such as Facebook um, or or your Microsoft account. The, there's a lot of options there. Okay. Last item. Last item. Accessibility. So this isn't required, but we did see some issues with uh, formatting issues around high contrast mode on. Um, and we did some education around accessibility requirements, and that was the, the last and, and least most common. Hmm. Right. Well, I think that's a show. We're going to have to leave it there. We're running out of time, but thank you very much. Uh, it's been such a pleasure, Robert, and uh, you keep doing the things that you do. I love the support that Microsoft is giving developers for Windows 8. Uh, it's second to none. Thank you. Could I give a couple of URLs real quick to the listeners? Sure can. Number one, I recommend you sign up for generationapp.com. We'll provide you a lot of guidance in over 30 days. You get you get a bunch of great content. Also, go to windowsstore.com forward slash app labs. You can find a lab in your neighborhood and sign up for it and come on in. Awesome. Thanks again, Robert. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. Oh, man, what?